Before we get to the show, we have a request. The media, as you knew it, is dead. Fox is dead. So don't turn it on and listen to it in the afternoon and during the evening hours till you go to bed, as most people used to do in the living room. Support free media. There's not many channels out there. There's the Epic Times, Gateway Pundit, a few others. But there's CDM. We are a growing global media conglomerate. We have websites and reporters all over the world, 12 at last count. The Colorado Free Press is coming on next week, and we're opening another paper in Montana after that. So the cavalry is coming, but we need your support. We have a no-ad subscription. It's 10 bucks a month. You don't see any ads. We know people don't like ads on their phones. They don't like pop-ups. Well, you can do something about it. So when you're sitting around the fire when you're older and your grandchild asks you, what did you do during the Great People's War, Papa? You can tell them, I helped CD Media and I helped Free Media save the Republic. So go to our channels, go to cdm.press, go to the Georgia Record, go to wherever you can find CD Media. We have a lot of websites and simply sign up for our no ad subscription. It's 10 bucks a month. It's not a lot. There's a discount for an annual subscription. So help us out, support free media, and do something. You know, there was 3% that did something during the American Revolution. Be the 3%. Help CD Media get our no-ad subscriptions. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is our Globalist Conversation Show on Sundays in plain sight. And uh, we're, we're a little late today because uh, I'm on the road in the studio. Mary Howland, who's joining us today. Hi, Mary. Hi, Christine. Uh, is down in Alabama. It's traveling. Uh, Mary, as everybody knows, is a friend of the show. She's also on leave from Children's Health Defense. Uh, as general counsel and president, and she is with the Kennedy campaign now. But you're, you're speaking, we invited you on the show, Mary, to talk about the Simpson Wood cover up 23 years ago because you are a mother of a vaccinated injured child. So um, this is a serious conversation. Recently, there was an event that we covered down in Atlanta, in Norcross, uh, Georgia, celebrating, unfortunately celebrating or reminding people about the cover-up 23 years ago at the uh, CDC, FDA, NIH, a, you know, a group of people, about 40 people that came together for a conference and they found some evidence and decided not to share it with the public at that time. So Mary, let, let's, go, let's go back in time, okay, and explain to the public for those that do not understand the significance of this, because the evidence of harm was the first book. You and Laura were my, you know, co-presidents of my book club back in 2021 to get me up to speed. But that was written by the late, unfortunately, just recently just passed away, David Kirby. And that was an extraordinary book because it really showed me as a journalist how much in the the, the length and breadth to which the U.S. government went to hide the harms of uh, vaccinations uh, on children. Right. So I think, Christine, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And, and I think we know that the pharmaceutical industry um, has been involved in other deceptions and other big industries. Tobacco hid the fact that they knew it caused lung cancer. Uh, the opioid, Oxycontin, we now know that the regulators and the industry knew that it was causing addiction. There was no question in their minds, but they, they deceived the public. So the idea that major industries would deceive the public should not be something that shocks us. But somehow vaccines have been touted as safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective for 75 years, 100 years. And propaganda works and censorship works. And they always go hand in hand. So what and we they were, it was a blanket, you know, generalization, safe right, and effective right. for everybody <laughs> on the planet, no exceptions. And if they were, they were rare. Right, right. One in a million. They acknowledged there could be problems. It was one in a million. That's what's on every vaccine information statement. So um, where this, where 
where the change point year was in so many different conditions, severe allergies, autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, apraxia, asthma, a lot of different conditions, was really the very end of the 1980s. And through the 1990s, and we can talk about why that was, but in through the mm-hmm. 1990s, we started to see this really remarkable increase in some of these neurodevelopmental autoimmune conditions, including ticks, dyspraxia, ADHD, autism in particular. And at that time in the 1990s, a preservative called thimerosal was being used in childhood vaccines, infant vaccines. And and thimerosal is made up 50% of ethyl mercury. Mercury is the third most toxic element on the periodic table after plutonium and uh, uranium. It's the third most toxic element. Obviously, Christine, it shouldn't be in infant vaccines. And starting in early 90s, hepatitis B vaccine, a sexually transmitted disease or through shared, you know, needles, genetics, right? That was put on the childhood schedule on the day of birth in hospitals. Which is so, crazy when you think about it. Which is remains the case, Christine, and it's absolutely ludicrous. And there are plenty of MDs who will tell you when they, and most of them don't even know about this, but they will tell you this is insane. We can go into the background in that. But basically what started to happen is that we saw this problem, right? And so at this secret meeting in Norcross, Virginia, off-site from the CDC, which is- in Georgia. You mean Georgia. Georgia. I'm sorry. Located in Georgia. So it was off-site. They clearly had concerns. They went to this remote Methodist retreat center in Norcross, Virginia called Simpsonwood. It's now no longer, it's a park, but it's not a retreat center. Anyway, um, about 40 people from the CDC, from every major pharmaceutical company, from the World Health Organization, they all convened and they had a, they were explicitly told, no notes, we're going to circulate documents, we're going to take them back. This is a totally secret meeting. And the only reason we know about it, Christine, is first and foremost, because an early group called Safe Minds and our colleagues, Lynn Redwood and Laura Bono, who later came to Children's Health Events, they were among the founders of Safe Minds. They did a Freedom of Information Act request. And in the first box that Lynn Redwood opened when she went to go get six huge crates from the CDC was a transcript of this meeting in June 2000 at Simpsonwood, um, Virginia, uh, Simpsonwood, Georgia. And what this transcript says is really extraordinary. It is literally this Belgian scientist, Thomas Verstraten, who later ends up at GlaxoSmithKline, he's charged to look at the data from the vaccine safety data link. So this is this great repository of information about childhood vaccines, you know, collated from all over the country. And they could see that infants who got the hep B dose, the hepatitis B dose with thimerosal at birth were 11 times, you know, 1,100 times more likely to have an autism diagnosis than the children who didn't get that dose at the day of birth. And there were other extraordinary things for, you know, verbal, nonverbal learning disabilities, for dyspraxia, for tics. There was really, really strong data. And literally the the doctors and scientists sitting around this conference room were like, oh, my God, we can't make the signal go away. And in so many words, Christine, they were like, we've got to massage this data. We can't let this data get into less responsible hands. What would the trial lawyers do if they found out about this? They, they literally say those things. There's one scientist who says, a physician, he says, I just ran out of the room. My son is about to have a baby. I'm calling my daughter-in-law right now. Don't take thimerosal. Don't take Which is, would, when I When I read that, Mary, I mean, th- that sort of lands it right then and there. This is yes. among 40 people. He shares it. I mean, he's so scared. He makes the phone call. To yeah, it's family. sickening. And then one of the other ones that's so sickening to me, Christine, is the representative of the World Health Organization who's there. And we all know that we're on the cusp of sort of the global global health being put in one health in the hands of the World Health Organization. It's the scientist from the World Health Organization who says, this study should never have been done. <laughs> I, I know, mean, I know. This- it's sort of like, don't bring, don't bring us the bad news to the table because then we have to deal with it or we have to hide it. Right. It's like, we didn't want to have to hide this. What do we care if babies have autism? What do we care if they die? What do we care if they, they can't speak? 
I, I mean, that is a criminal mindset, Christine. This is very explicitly willful blindness. This is criminal a culpability. When you intentionally look the other way, when you know you are causing a crime, that is willful blindness. That is culpable. So this was sort of known by a small coterie of people. Um, as you mentioned, David Kirby, who was a friend of mine in Brooklyn, who really did us an enormous, um, we have enormous debt of gratitude to him. But there were others. Um, Jim Moody was one, Robert Krakow, Lynn Redwood, Laura Bono. They were all part of this very early group of people really understand. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them had vaccine injured children who, and, and this group of children with autism, which is a kind of a catch-all phrase, Christine, it's kind of a garbage pile, pale of different, really different things going on. But children who were poisoned at a very early age with mercury, which went to their brains, ethyl mercury goes to the fatty organs. These are severely injured children for the most part. These are really severely injured children. For our audience, Mary, let's back up. So th this means meeting happened in 2000, June mm -hmm. 2000. Right. Um, but let's talk about the year uh, that Lynn right. received the box because- yeah. So I believe she went and picked up the box. So, so sadly, one of the other really, David Kirby in his book, Evidence of Harm, um, cut really, really tracks three women, um, three mothers, Laura Bono, Lynn Redwood and Liz Burt. And Liz Burt was an attorney. And so I met Liz once. I felt a real affinity for her. And sadly, she's no longer with us. But she's the one who was really the one who really initiated these Freedom of Information Act requests. I believe that Lynn got these in 2003. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, through another early activist mom, Sarah Bridges, a PhD, very entrepreneurial, very um, erudite woman, she's the one that Bobby credits, Bobby Kennedy credits, was really forcing him to read the science. She was friends with one of his siblings. She went to Cape Cod where Bobby was on the summer. She came with a stack this high of science related to thimerosal toxicity. And, and said, I won't leave. I won't I leave, won't leave until you look at this. And as Bobby often says, you know, he's very familiar with reading science. That's what he did as a litigator against polluters. You have to look at the science of toxicity and there's always going to be experts on two sides. So he looked at this data and he was like, oh my God, you know, and he he tells the story as he just did in his Rogan interview. You know, he nobody wants to get into this, Christine. Nobody wants to be a pariah. Nobody wants to say the emperor has no clothes because when you say the emperor has no clothes, everybody attacks you, right? But this is so Bobby gets to know these parents because he had been involved in studying mercury. He'd been litigating against coal-fired power plants that were putting mercury into the air. There's really good science, Christine, that there's higher right. levels of autism among infants born around coal-fired uh, plants. So he felt like he had to look at this data. He looks at this data and really the turning point in his career and in some respects, in the global consciousness around this was 2005, June, where he published a, an article called Deadly Immunity at the same time in Rolling Stone and Salon. Mm -hmm. And I just went back before I spoke at the event in Atlanta, Georgia, I went back to read the article. It's as important and prescient then as it is today. And it was really exposing what happened at that meeting in Simpsonwood, Georgia. It's a cover-up. It is a criminal conversation, Christine. It really is. Taken down to its basic level, this is a group of co-conspirators who are talking about how do we hide this? They're not talking about how do we make vaccines safer? What do we do about the children we harmed? Oh my God, we got it wrong. There's none of that, none of it. It's about how do we bury this signal? And they did, Christine. So what did they do? I can I can tell you what they did after. I, did, I, I do want to do that. You know, we, I was just going to mention, Mary, we did an interview with Scott and Laura Bono uh, right. around right before around the uh, anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And we asked them, you know, what was your reaction? And as parents, and because Laura and Scott were involved with the investigation at that time, you know, the tears, Laura said she just cried, you know, for, forever. And Scott said, you know, just the anger to know that people did this to your family and there was no remorse. 
Yeah. No, there's no remorse expressed at that meeting. I've got to tell you though, Christine, I grew up in a hyper medicalized environment. Both my parents are physicians. Three of my siblings are in the medical pharmaceutical field. My One of my uncles was the medical director of the FDA. I read it and I couldn't believe it, Christine. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't sure if this was really true, right? So I read the whole transcript online, but I was not going to approach what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had written without skepticism. And so my reading of Simpsonwood propelled me to reach out and to, and this is years later, really, to say, I want to listen to every session of the omnibus autism proceeding. And it was then when I, in real time, I heard the government try to make the case that vaccines don't cause autism, that I was utterly persuaded. Until that point, it was a, it was certainly a very, very deeply troubling, but I was skeptical even then reading that transcript. Well, maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Maybe that's not what they mean. Maybe it, that wasn't the, maybe that was, because it's about 278 pages. Is that no, right? it's like 87. It's like 90 pages. It's like 90 pages is the whole transcript, I think. No, it's longer. It's actually, it? okay. it's, it's actually longer. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It, it, I mean, it, it's lengthy to begin with, but it's, but it's, you, you, you don't know if you have the inflections and I, I presume that listening to it must've just blown you away. Well, when you when yeah, I mean, listening to the omnibus autism proceeding was like, then I was absolutely certain reading it. And, and as David Kirby said, how, how many symptoms and words were there? We don't know. We, we mm -hmm. happened to fall upon that one through one freedom of information act request. And then, I did other things to convince myself. I mean, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the government knows and that they're covering this up. I mean, there's no question about it. And I can tell you other bases for that. But, um, you know, in a way, I think there are many other, as, as Bobby said in the Rogan interview, there are many other toxic dimensions to vaccine toxicity. Aluminum is now really taking the place of thimerosal, which wasn't just a preservative. It was a preservative in multi-dose vials of vaccines, particularly hepatitis B and others, but it also was serving as an adjuvant. An adjuvant boosts right. the immune response. And so now aluminum. Aluminum is also very neurotoxic. Many vaccines also have DNA contamination. We're now finding that's the case for COVID shots. There's a lot of problems with the safety of vaccines, and there's a lot of problems with the agency capture with the testing, with the liability, all there are many, many problems. But in some respects, Christine, what that meeting at Simpsonwood was about was very clear and very limited. Should we continue to have thimerosal in childhood vaccines and is it neurotoxic? And they came back with a very clear answer. It is neurotoxic. They did not go out to the public with that. What they went out to the public with in early 2000s was, there's no evidence of harm, but just out of an abundance of caution, we're going to take it out. So that was a bold-faced lie. I don't think we know exactly who all knew it was a lie, but it was absolutely a lie that there was no evidence of harm. And then, in fact, um, the CDC commissioned the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy, to do studies to explicitly exonerate thimerosal. And that study that Thomas Verstraten did, they massaged the data for about four years. They took out different cohorts. They changed definitions. They did this and that so that by the time that data was actually published in pediatrics, the journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, it showed no signal. The first line of data, and as Robert says in the Rogan interview, you know, when you have a twofold difference, that is enough for like smoking a pack a day of cigarettes. It was 11-fold difference, Christine. It was unambiguous in 2000 to the CDC. And, and there's another fantastic book I want to plague, um, Age of Autism by Mark Blacksell and Dan Olmsted, another, abs probably you've read, mm -hmm. another classic in this area. And they also did Freedom of Information Act and looked back and, and the CDC was quite aware of Simpsonwood even beforehand. They did a study in Brick, New Jersey. In Brick, New Jersey, some activist parents were seeing this epidemic of severe neurological harm to these young children. They're like, is it in the water? What is it? And they go to the CDC. The CDC comes and does a very thorough investigation and then the CDC closes it down. Right, right. They realize it's not the water, it's actually endemic. It probably is something that we're doing and we're not gonna go there. And there's other evidence of this culpability of like willful blindness. Again, Robert mentions this in this Rogan interview that I highly recommend to people. 
Well, hold hold on. Let's let's back up. So, 2005, Bobby writes the piece that, that appears in Rolling Stone and so on. Let's talk about what happened when when that the, those pieces were published. Well, when they're published, Christine, this is you know that which may not be said, right? So, you know, it's one thing for this tiny little group of parents. Uh, who are coming together and, you know, the line about us parents is, oh, they're just looking for something to blame. You know, they just don't know what to do. And, you know, they just got a raw deal and nature was unkind to them. That that was the narrative. And, you know, they these were very well credentialed PhDs, lawyers, doctors. These were not easy people to marginalize. But up until that article in Rolling Stone, they were a relatively small group certainly completely against scientific medical orthodoxy and marginalizable, if you will. Then Robert F. Kennedy Jr., scion of this, you know, legendary American political family, a guy who is regularly writing op-eds for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, on ABC, NBC, CBS. Who won so many cases as a He's published bestsellers list, New York Times, you know, uh, luminary in the environmental law field. He comes out with the unspeakable, that there may be a problem here with these vaccines. And, and, and his article is quite limited. It's thimerosal. At that point, he thinks it's just thimerosal. But he comes out with his article and Rolling Stone and Salon are hammered. He is hammered. But at that time, Christine, it was still a very different climate than today. He actually goes on Joe Scarborough's show. He has mm -hmm. a respectful interview. He goes on Jon Stewart's comedy show. They have a respectful dialogue. He um, doesn't, he's not completely silenced in 2005. David Kirby also goes on national TV. Um, there was a, a moment in which this was still a part of polite conversation. You could have differences. It was, it was the, you know, CBS, CBS ABC, NBC, they were discussing that in the days that I was there. Yeah, it was still something that was, um, it was still possible to have a conversation about this issue. It wasn't absolutely sort of excommunicated, essentially like a religion. But with those passing years, so six years later in 2011, I think, um, basically there was a decision at some level, we don't know the full, the full dimensions of it, but there was a decision. We've got to clamp this down. This, this is not okay. We can't let this continue. Do you, and think, Mary, do you think that they were scared of, uh, scared of Bobby because of the name at that point in time, because the, the movement was growing from everything yes. that I'm looking at, at, at that, in oh, that yes. period of time after, after he was slammed for so in the salon. The movement was, so there were many efforts during this period, Christine, I think when the history is written from 2015 to from 2005 to 2011, when the Rolling Stone and Salon both simultaneously retracted the article with no basis. In that six year period, there were many efforts to limit religious exemptions, to limit personal belief exemptions, to vilify people, to silence that information. But again, it was still it was still seeping through the cracks, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but in 2011, that's when really, I think, war was truly declared on Bobby as a representative for those of us who were arguing that there's a problem here. There's there's not real safety. This We're doing harm to our own children. Like, what does that say about a society that they will look the other way when they're harming their own children? So um, 2011, they retracted those two articles and out came this really nasty... <laughs> unimpressive book by a gentleman named Seth Mnookin, an early writer called The Panic Virus. And it was literally a kind of diatribe against the parents of vaccine injured children whom he had interviewed. There was no science in it. Uh, it was really just a, a series of the talking points of CDC. And then in 2015, you'll remember, we saw this terrible outbreak of the measles at Disneyland and or Disney World. And then we see um, the the end of the personal belief exemption in California. That's 2015. And then from 2015 to 2020, we see New York loses exemption. 2019, we see huge fights in New Jersey, huge fight in Connecticut. Maine loses its medical, uh, its, its religious exemption. We see pharma really trying to close ranks on this issue. You can't get into mainstream media. Bobby Kennedy cannot get anything published. The children's health defense is is formed. It becomes the moniker is, you know, an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, right? You're wacko if you have this belief. And again, this is being said, trotted out with no science. 
And one of the things except, that- except for the base the basis of the article in Rolling Stone and Salon in 2005 was based upon the conversations behind closed doors that they wanted to suppress by the scientists who were approving these same shots. Yeah, this is the CDC, WHO, and pharma at the table. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. So so we see this sort of crescendo, and then of course in. Uh, 2020, we have event 201, we have building up through this time, the flu shots, I should say, incidentally, that thimerosal is taken out of routine childhood vaccinations in the meanwhile, they do by the early 2000s, they start shipping this to the developing world, the thimerosal containing shots are still being used worldwide, bought by Gavi, bought by World Health. Even though they know this today, that's what makes this so, so immoral, that they, they were caught in the United States. They turned over their own documents, their own evidence in their own words. I mean, this is their conversation behind closed doors, and they suppressed that evidence. Then they decided to take uh, thimerosal out, but they continue, right? And they continue, continue to ship this all over the world. And they continue to use other vaccines that are no longer acceptable in the United States. The oral polio vaccine, the whole cell diphtheria tetanus pertussis, those are not used. They are not on the market in the United States, they're still being pushed around the world. They have terrible profiles for injury. Um, Mary, so- let me ask you this. Knowing what you know, <clears throat> and I, I don't pretend to be a scholar on this. I mean, you guys are my best teachers catching up on this, but it, it, it dawns on me that they know how bad it is, even though they continue to, to uh, distribute it overseas. Is this why there's so much effort to put our health sovereignty under the WHO to, so that we won't hold FDA accountable anymore? Well, I think, I think the reality, I'm not sure I can answer that. The reality is that CDC, WHO, FDA, CDC and FDA have been at the forefront of global health, just like the U.S. has been at the forefront of the U.N. and World Health Organization. So I think that there's been this effort um, on a global scale for quite a while now, pandemic preparedness, vaccination. It was the Obama administration in 2014 that put together the global health security agenda, which articulated the creation of more of these biological uh, security labs of the type of Wuhan, Fort Detrick, dual use bioweapons, and also 90% threshold for measles vaccination worldwide. So we, we, when we look back, particularly to the Obama administration, we see a decision being made. And this is at the same time that the connection between autism and vaccines is becoming very clear. So the Vax movie is coming out about this time, the William Thompson revelations. I wish we could know exactly who said what when, but we start to see this globalization around vaccines quite a bit earlier. Gavi is a Gates creation, uh, Global Alliance for Vaccination and Immunization. Gates and 20... It's, it's, it's almost like a distributing warehouse for vaccination. Yes. Oh, it is. And then he creates in 2018 the um, countermeasures... Uh, no, what is it? CEPI, the, CEPI. the Center for epidemic preparedness initiative, something like that. Another sort of globalized thing. I mean, pharma has been global for decades, Christine, but I wanted to point out that we did in the United States take thimerosal out of routine childhood vaccines, but it was not taken out of flu shots, which were recreated every year. So there were multi-dose flu shots with thimerosal. And at the same time, they started being recommended for the first time after we took it out in the early 2000s, recommended to pregnant women. So can you imagine? Which, which was supposed to be the hands off of, of everything. In, in- I mean, can you imagine? So we know they know it's neurotoxic to day old infants. And so then they recommend giving thimerosal to fetuses de facto. I mean, it's it's just again, it's just and what that did, Christine, I can't impute their intent. But what that did was it created a whole new brand of um, autism and um, severe autism and miscarriages of women who got these shots during their pregnancy. And it kind of blurred the line because I do. And then they also amped up dramatically the amount of aluminum in these um, childhood vaccines, having taken out the thimerosal. So the line is you you might have imagined, Christine, one might have imagined that when you take thimerosal out, even over a couple of years, you'd see a dramatic decline in autism. 
we didn't see that. Why? Because it was added into the flu shots. It's added into a recommendation for pregnant women. We increased the aluminum and then we changed the definition of autism, right? So we go from having autism to having and having Asperger's and having um, childhood disintegrative syndrome and Rett syndrome. We changed that to autism spectrum disorder. We glom them all together so we can't keep track. So a lot of things happened that would help to explain why we didn't see a dramatic decline. But the only problem with vaccines, sad to say, is not just thimerosal. And as, again, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. emphasizes, This is about the fact that vaccines, because they have been considered since World War II and before as a part of the military, they have been considered as a part of a potential bioweapons arsenal, um, they have not been subjected to the same kind of rigorous double-blind placebo-controlled testing that all other drugs are, and they don't have the same liability. They've been shoved under public health, which is a subsidiary of the military, and so they have to be ready to be produced within a month, warp speed, and there's no liability, right? In 1986, and then again in 2005, essentially Congress blessed a decision to absolve the pharmaceutical industry and government planners and the medical profession of any kind of accountability for harm that might result from vaccines. So what we need to understand is that vaccine, and and another important point is that Vaccine research by its very nature and development is connected to bioweapons research because you don't want to develop a bioweapon for which you don't have a vaccine. So the research teams of people who work on vaccine development do have a role in the military and coming up with or being close to the people that are coming up with bioweapons. So it's a very called countermeasures for anybody who's out there. When they hear the word countermeasures, that means it's vaccines made up for the response to right. a bioweapon. So important from a legal perspective, in 1986, Congress passes the, passes the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which creates the first kind of tort reform in the United States. You can't go and sue Merck or Glaxo or Pfizer if your child is injured by a vaccine. You have to go to this compensation program with tremendous restrictions, very measured out um, compensation. But the idea, at least initially, was that we're going to mandate these shots and we don't want to have these pharmaceutical companies go bankrupt because it is so life-saving. So we're going to compensate people and we're going to make it easy. Well, that didn't happen. But then in 2005, after 9-11, after the Patriot Act, it goes the next step and Congress passes what's called the PREP Act, the Public Readiness and Preparedness Act, which goes a step farther and immunizes not only the medical profession, not only the pharmaceutical industry, but also anybody in government who makes this all happen and creates this whole idea of an emergency use authorization product, which is what the COVID-19 shots were, which have just unbelievable liability protection. You don't even go to a kind of tort reform panel. You literally, I think, go to a dead letter box called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, where I think six people have, out of the millions who have been injured so far from COVID shots, six people have been adjudicated compensation, and it's been, you know, ridiculous. Nothing. It's been nothing. But let's let's talk. Let's talk about. Bobby did an interview with Rogan the other day. Uh, it's gained a lot of attention. Let's talk about the significance of Simpson Wood in today's context, because even though it happened 23 years ago. And we know it was a cover-up. They don't deny it. Nobody, nobody denies this. I no. mean, this is what makes this so extraordinary. And 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 David Kirby in in Evidence of Harm made that pretty clear. This was consciously known and consciously without a conscience covered up by the U.S. government officials. How many of those people, Mary, just off the top of your head, do you think are still around today that were part of that? The forty in the room. Most of them. Most of them. Christine. One in particular who comes to my mind is Robert Chen. Um, he has been head of vaccine safety at the Centers for Disease Control. He's been in this world for 30, 40 years. Um, he's still at the table. Uh, he's still going to the World Health Organization meetings on vaccine safety. I don't know all the other names. Actually, one of the statisticians that we've actually worked with is still in the game. Many of those people are still in the game. Yeah, and and that's that that is significant. Oh, it's very scary, and it's, and it's scary because these are the same it's people. Very scary. These people showed 
real knowledge of, of guilt, real, real culpability in 2000. And here we are in 2023. And the only people who've been vilified since then, or in any way, um, kind of harmed, uh, have been the Cassandras, have been the people saying like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., you know, there's a problem here. There's a real problem. Mm -hmm. These people mm -hmm. are not dealing with the truth. So I'm so excited. He, Robert Kennedy, explicitly talked about Simpsonwood in this um, Rogan interview. And I think Joe Rogan, unlike ABC, NBC, which are still trying to, New York Times, trying to censor Bobby on this topic, Joe Rogan asked him some... It, first acknowledged that he too had been deceived by this idea that Bobby Kennedy was an anti-vax conspiracy theorist wacko. And let me just say this, knowing Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy is like I am. We are anti-pharma corruption. He's just anti-corruption, Christine. And I have to say in two days, a uh, really superb biography by Dick Russell is coming out about him called R The Real RFK Jr., Truth Warrior. And it really, if you read it, and it's a fast read, it's about 300 pages. It really helps you see, like, he's incredibly consistent. This is nothing new for him. He's just not afraid to speak truth to power. I mean, that's really all this is. It's not... It doesn't matter that it's a vaccine per se. It's a medicine that's being given to people without a choice, which violates medical ethics. And it's harmful because it's never been properly tested. And I think where he starts his discussion on the Rogan interview, as he often does, is this really important study that was published in 2018 by the gods of vaccine science, by Peter Abbey and by uh, Sigrid Morgensen. These are Danish vaccine scientists, been working on this for you know 40 years. And they do a study a of what was a natural experiment in Guinea-Bissau. Half of children happened to get a vaccine at a certain point, half did not. And they had never gone back to really compare the outcomes. And what they found when they went back, Christine, is that infant girls were 10 times more likely to die if they had gotten DPT shots, 10 times more likely to die, not of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, but of malaria, of pneumonia, and of all kinds of other diseases because the shot in that incredibly fragile period of human development was clearly harming their immune system. Mary, is that is that considered what, what they call ADE, advanced yeah. development well, enhancement? Antibody-dependent enhancement is different. No, antibody-dependent enhancement is what's been happening with the COVID-19 shots, which we have seen happen in the past with dengue vaccine shots and with... Um, uh, with um, RSV shots. And that is that the more shots you get against that specific disease actually make you more susceptible to that specific disease. So we now have a Cleveland Clinic study that just came out, Christine, that shows us that the more COVID shots and boosters you get, the more likely you are to get COVID. Right now, there's a different issue about the more COVID shots you get, the more likely you are to die or the more likely you are to get cancer or stroke or heart disease. That's a different question. But um, ADE is what happens when literally the shots predispose you to get that illness. The DPT shot that they gave then that they're still giving around the world. Um, it just is, it, it, they were primarily looking at death. They weren't even looking at diagnoses like autism and neurological harm. But I'm in touch with one family in particular, Christine, um, that we were able to work with a few years back uh, in a developing country. And, you know, the, the kind of harms are just profound. And then when you live in a country with very, very, very little infrastructure, it's just, it's devastating. It's just devastating. Well, it is. It's devastating all along. Let's go back to let's go back to Rogan. So, so the reaction to Rogan. Let, let's talk about the ramifications of that because there has been an uptake uh, in in terms of Bobby's star because of that interview. Well, I think it's really exciting. So it was it was a really profound interview where Joe Rogan asked him questions for over an hour about his views on vaccines and without interruption. Robert had the opportunity to really explain them. He also talked a little bit about electromagnetic radiation and what we perceive are the harms there. Uh, and then he talked about his concerns about the middle class and about war and about the, the uh, intelligence agencies and, and sort of the, all of the main issues that he's really concerned about in his campaign. 
Um, but one of the fascinating things that happened after that uh, interview, which was just earlier this week, is that Joe Rogan, who had previously interviewed Dr. Peter Hotez, a main um, inventor, advocate for vaccines. Pro-vaccine all the way. All the way. And he has a daughter with autism. He wrote a book, you know, Vaccines Didn't Cause Rachel's Autism. Um, Rogan had interviewed him during the COVID context. And Rogan talked about this in the interview with Bobby. He was shocked of like, what do you, you know, you seem a little overweight. Do you exercise? Do you watch what you eat? Are you taking vitamins? And Hotez answers to all of these things. No, no, no. I don't do any of that stuff. I, I'm a junk foodaholic. And, and Rogan is like, you want us to take an experimental emergency use authorization product and you do nothing to support your immune system? Like, this is crazy. This guy is nuts. So anyway, after the debate, he, Rogan on Twitter, and he doesn't usually use Twitter, he reaches out to Hotez, who is on Twitter a lot. And he says, Hotez, come back on and debate RFK Jr. on my platform and I will donate $100,000 to the vaccine charity of your choice. And Hotez first sends back a really snarky email, a really snarky tweet that says, that's chump change to you, pal. You should be offering $50 million to do for me to come back on this. And then he deletes that tweet. And then people start piling on Christine. So I think the bidding is right now over $1.5 million to have Hotez come back on the Rogan show to debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, and, and Robert has put in a tweet in this thread to say, you know, Dr. Hotez, I would love to have a respectful, cordial, uh, amicable debate with you because the American public really does want to understand this issue. So it's very exciting, Christine, because for... 23 years and running, we have not been able to break through the barrier to having this debate. I don't want to tell anybody what to do about their health care. I don't believe that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. does either. That has got to be an individual decision between an individual and their health care practitioner, whoever that is. That's what informed consent means. It is a right of the individual. It is not population health. It is not mandates. It has to be made. We are all individual. We do not have a one-size-fits-all human body right. experience. And so we've got to be able to make individualized health care decisions. And yet, what has been the vaccine program in the United States and worldwide for the last almost 100 years has been this kind of homogenation as if it's okay that we only serve the greater good and that, oh, well, too bad if your kid gets brain damage or your kid gets paralyzed or your child dies or you die. Well, it was for the greater good. That's not the ethics on which the United States was founded. That's not the law on which the United States was founded. And so we have sort of gone down this dead end that is genuinely aberrational. And I think we're at the very, very beginning of possibly seeing this turned around. But let's not forget, Christine, that still YouTube is regularly censoring and you know taking shows off the air. Although Facebook has put Robert Kennedy's uh, Instagram back on, uh, there is still rampant censorship and still the description of anything that challenges the orthodoxy as misinformation, disinformation, and so on. So we're, we're definitely yeah, not- It's increased in some circles. We, we have Southern Poverty Law Center now, Nicole Moms, Moms for Liberty, you know, terrorist. I, I mean, it, it's lunacy. So if the government doesn't do it, then there'll, there'll be some other people who, you know, have a huge endowment that will do it for them. Just the same way that well, we saw the censorship. Yeah. We know that there was a, a real censor, sort of a government corporate fusion around censorship. And the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit uh, that was brought in Louisiana by the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana have made this absolutely clear that there were at least 90 people in the Biden administration in the last few years, Christine, engaged on a daily basis with Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram on censoring content that they found offensive, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr. explicitly. How many how many people do you think, Mary, when we get to the bottom of this, even with the TNIC suit, the, the, the Trusted News Initiative suit, which um, CD Media is involved with, how many people do you think are going to be involved with this? Because it just seems to me, you know, I guess maybe thought maybe it's just too big to be held, to hold everybody accountable. But the, the longer I see this, the, the more I think that people will be held accountable. 
I think it's going to take a long well, time. I, I pray that that's the case, Christine, and you know, worked very hard on that while I was at Children's Health Defense. And um, we cannot have democracy with censorship. They are fundamentally incompatible. And the U.S. is different, Christine, in its First Amendment. I have spent quite a bit of time in Europe, and I think you've spent time in other countries, and other countries do have much higher barriers to what they consider to be hate speech. But the mm -hmm. problem is, you know, hate speech is in the eyes of the beholder. Once you start saying we will censor speech, well, where do you draw that line? And literally people who talk about the fact that COVID shots have problems or that ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine was suppressed, that can be characterized as hate speech. And it is being characterized as hate speech in Europe right now. In fact, CJ Hopkins, a very important writer, um, uh, has now been, criminal charges, I believe, have already been brought against him for uh, being a Holocaust denier when he's really making valid comparisons about what's been happening lately with what was happening in the 1930s. So it's censorship is incompatible with democracy. Absolutely. And the World Health Organization is now explicitly saying that one of the greatest threats to global health is misinformation. I mean, well, the they need to, they need to, for, for that for them to say something like that. They need to hold up the mirror and look themselves in the mirror because WHO has lied. And we also know that when you do continue to administer vaccinations all over the world, UNICEF, which comes under the UN, WHO comes under the UN. And the UNICEF is one of the largest purchasers of vaccinations of any entity worldwide. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, they're all part of the game. Yeah. And, and the bottom line is I was fortunate to be an editor of a book called Turtles All the Way Down. And yep. the authors are actually, uh, I don't even know who the real authors are, but I have a foreword and co-edited it with Zoe O'Toole. And this really is an extremely valuable book for those who let's are not talk yet. about that Mary because we haven't done an interview with you so let's talk about the book right now yeah I, I had it's called vaccine science you know turtles all the way down vaccine science and myth it's self-published on Amazon by the authors it's basically only available on Amazon it was first published in Hebrew I first became aware of this book in 2019 it came out in 2022 in English it's now being translated into many languages around the world it is by very knowledgeable uh, people scientists clearly, although truly, I don't even know who they are. And in part, they, they are not identifying themselves, Christine, because then that gives rise to these ridiculous ad hominem attacks like Bobby's just suffered for the last, you know, 18 years, right. um, rather than people focusing on the arguments. But it's a step-by-step -step study of all the dimensions of what, are, what we are told are the three pillars of safety that ensure that the vaccine program for children is safe, doesn't deal with COVID, doesn't deal with adults, it deals with childhood vaccine schedule. And we're told that there are these preclinical studies. We are then told that there's adverse event reporting. And then we're told that there are these post-marketing studies and the book in exhaustive detail, but in a very readable layperson way goes through each of those alleged pillars and shows you there's no there there. There's really no there there. They don't do anywhere in the world in general randomized placebo-controlled long-term trials on vaccines like they have to do for drugs. And look at drugs. We know how often there are failures. We know how often there are multi-million dollar and billion dollar settlements for drugs that go through that more rigorous process. There's no rigorous process here. And we just look at what we just lived through with COVID, you know, warp speed, get them out, mandate them when they're emergency use authorization. These are completely novel technology. So the book doesn't deal with that. But it's it's a very, very valuable, readable book that takes you from sort of, you probably know there's a problem here, all the way to these people are not going to come clean. These people have been engaged in criminal conduct and we have to stop this. So it's a great kind of journey from, you know, you don't know what's going on to now you really do. You know, Mary, for the audience sake, because I think it's important when we talk about, you know, civil and criminal liabilities, give the audience the perspective of, you know, how much money has been when when some of these pharmaceutical companies have been sued by DOJ. Not everybody goes to jail. 
Okay, they have civil fines, criminal fines, but it Christine, doesn't necessarily let's mean jail. people go to jail. No, no, Christine, nobody goes to jail. <clears throat> nobody in pharma has gone to jail. Even the OxyContin people at Purdue got a slap on the wrist and they got some kind of suspended probation. Nobody goes to jail. And if we really want to turn this around, we're going to have to send people to jail because, in fact, these people have knowingly, if they didn't know I was killing Mr. Jones, they knew that a Mr. Jones was going to die as a result of what their decisions were. So it's not quite the same as I intentionally am killing you, but there is a gross negligence of I know my decision is going to kill people. That, that, we, we, that is absolutely the case. I mean, and and we know we know that there have been DOJ cases in the past. Mary, about how much money, how many billions of dollars have these U.S. pharmaceuticals? Oh my gosh! I mean, the the most recent one, I think, the Sackler settlement, and it's a settlement that precludes them from suffering any criminal liability, is six plus billion. I mean, they're billions of dollars. Um, Pfizer, Merck, they have paid billion dollar settlements, billion dollars of um, sanctions. They've set up. Uh, Vioxx is one in particular uh, with Merck. They set up a um, a fund. And, you know, a big part of the problem, in my view, Christine, is that people are not held criminally liable for these things. Back in the day, I think, well, at any rate, I think that's a big part of the problem is that a tremendous amount has been gotten away with. Look at this transcript from Simpson. What I urge people, you can find it on the internet. It's still there. And these people have culpability. They they know that what they're doing is wrong. They then go and they manipulate and falsify the original data. This guy Verstraten leaves the country so that he can't be subpoenaed. One of the people who helped create those studies to exonerate thimerosal, uh, he then absconds over to Denmark. Thorson is his name, Paul Thorson. There's an indictment for Paul Thorsman for embezzlement of funds. We don't even, we think he probably, I think he probably was doing this in cahoots with CDC. He's living kind of a privileged life. DOJ never went and, you know, had him extradited to the United States. There's real criminality going on here, Christine. There's real criminal, lives have been lost here. And it, it builds on itself, right? You, building on lies is not a good plan. And so we have this foundation at the heart of the childhood vaccine program. And we're now expanding that program to the adult global population. And we need to understand that there are really deep, really deadly lies at the bottom of this. And we need to stop it. We need to stop it. People, need, I think you're right. People need to be be held accountable this go around because if they don't it will repeat itself once it's again continue. it is going to continue mary holland thank you so much um you having fun on the campaign trail oh yeah <laughs> getting any sleep i mean you you know a little, a little it's uh it's never dull never dull never dull well we will see you soon mary and uh we hope to see bobby on our broadcast real soon as well thank you christine thank you